0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined by the best coach this side of Boulder Creek, Coach Trevor Connor. Before we jump into the episode, a note. Today is actually my last day as managing editor of Velo News. It's been an incredible run. But don't fret. Fast talk will live on. In fact, Trevor and I are going to expand our offerings in the near future, so please stay tuned. A few episodes back, Trevor and I interviewed George Bennett of Chumbo Visma, who at one point was sitting fourth at this year's Tour de France. At the time, we were talking with George about the importance of recovery and adaptations. In the course of that conversation, we spoke with George about how he was planning his recovery from the tour to get ready for the Vuelta. Back-to-back Grand Tours, stupid or incredible? That led to an entire conversation about how George trains and his tips for hitting peak form. Ultimately, we decided to take all that great information and make it a separate episode. That's today's episode. We cover, first, something that is fascinating but probably won't help many of us, how to complete two consecutive Grand Tours. Second, the training approach that George has found works for him. While many of his teammates need high-intensity work, George does very little, in fact, and focuses primarily on long endurance rides. But he does emphasize that the method that works for you is highly individual. We discuss if George's approach is actually appropriate for amateur riders, or if we should focus more on that intensity. Bennett points out that different work can lead to very different strengths and weaknesses. We'll discuss in more depth. Next, we have a long talk about the importance of eating enough and keeping your glycogen stocked up. And finally, George offers a final word on having the confidence to rest and not take your training too seriously. Along with George, we hear from our good friend, Grant Holicky, formerly of Apex Coaching when this interview was conducted and now with Forever Endurance Coaching. Grant addresses how to time your season, particularly as an amateur rider. And with that, Let's make you fast.
1: It was just a few episodes ago where we talked about the value of recovery. This is something that's really important to me as a coach. Most athletes can go out there and absolutely tear themselves apart on the bike or in a run, but they're not so good about that recovery side. And that's critical because it's in recovery that your body repairs and adapts and makes you stronger
0: yeah and just like athletes who go out there and can beat themselves up there's a lot of tools to track that side of the adaptation process that performance side or that uh, workload side but there aren't that many tools out there that track the recovery side and that's equally as important it's too bad we didn't have a strava recovery yeah exactly and turn it into a competition
1: yes Who can get the PR or the best night of sleep? Ooh, I like it. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. WHOOP helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, WHOOP just released a new WHOOP Strap 3.0 which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The WHOOP Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. So two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code Talk at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. So, Chris, we've been kind of excited to bring Aftershock headphones onto the, the show as one of our sponsors. Uh, as you know, I've been using them for for years. And I admit, when I first got mine, I thought they were just kind of gimmicky. They, they claim to be bone conduction. So they sit on your, your cheekbones and they send vibrations through your cheekbones that go directly to your eardrum. That allows you to keep your ears open and you can hear your surroundings. And I remember just thinking, no, they just got speakers on them that just sit really close mm-hmm. to your ears and it's, it's completely a gimmick. But I remember what, you know, right after I got them, I actually put them on. I put my fingers in my ears to block my, my ear canals. And they actually got louder. Hmm. So this actually truly is, it, it is bone conduction. That's crazy. It goes crazy. through your cheekbones. And the advantage of this is if you're out for a ride and you want to listen to some music or listen to a uh, any particular podcast, mm. You can have these on, hear your music, but your ears are completely open so you can hear cars and everything else that's right, going on around Right, exactly. You. A lot safer that way. Of course, when I'm riding with Chris, I, I prefer to
0: have the completely noise-canceling <laughs> headphones in, so I just don't have to hear them. <laughs> that's not nice at all, Trevor. Sorry, Chris. This episode was sponsored by Aftershocks, the award-winning headphone brand best known for its open-ear listening experience. Powered by patented best-in-class bone conduction technology, Aftershocks headphones sit outside your ear so you can hear your music and your surroundings. Aftershocks is a must-have headphone for cyclists, providing the ultimate level of safety and comfort without compromising sound quality. To learn more and save 50 bucks on Aftershocks bundles, visit Aftershocks.com. That's A-F-T-E-R-S-H-O-K-Z.com and use code FASTTALK. All right, we're sitting here with George Bennett. He's at home in Andorra at the moment. Uh, George, what are you up to today?
2: Well, I'm currently watching the uh, the final of Tour of Poland with my teammate Jonas, young guy, looking looking pretty good. Sitting here with my my Normatec boots on, actually. I had a bit of a session on the TT bike today, so uh, trying trying to flush a bit of the damage out while I uh, while I can and uh, get ready for tomorrow. Excellent, George. Is that something you do pretty often? yeah yep I mean every day in the tour we were using the boots, and uh pretty much every day for me uh, in, in training, I'll put them on it's uh you know it's even with massage we're also using the boots so um it really helps me for the recovery helps me from from doing things day to day and um really really enjoy them and actually, we've got the whole team on board now, so uh, all the boys are all the boys are pretty happy
1: when you use them. What are the differences that you notice do you feel different the next day
2: yeah I mean for me a huge difference is there's a I struggle a little bit with sort of um inflammation and and things like that and 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 the boots really help on that front I also feel um a lot of the advantages of of having a massage it could fly you know could sort of i guess for for lack of a better word I mean I hate to use the word toxins because I feel like it's 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 overused and and too many. False sort of claims, but I do feel without you know a lot less you know there's a good flush of toxins out of the body and out of my legs and, and a lot of the damage it helps me go day to day.
0: And so the the best way to train for the Vuelta is to do the Tour de France and get sick the
2: last few days. Well, yeah, that's that's my current approach at the moment. <laughs> um, really reverse, really reverse into the last uh, the last weekend of the tour, sort of hobble through the the week afterwards, and then try and get back on the horse and roll the dice really it's anyone's guess how to go in between the tour and the Vuelta and I've done it a couple of times um the, the combo and one time it worked out amazingly it was uh, you know I guess it was my first top 10 in the grand tour but I I also didn't have a weekend at home between the tour and the Vuelta I went straight to San Sebastian and then from there flew to the Olympics and then I think I did one training ride in Girona maybe and then went to the Vuelta and it turned out great and then the following year I uh I was home after I went to the Vuelta and came home a week later. So it can go either way, uh, doing the double. But um, I'm hoping this time I'm a bit wiser and sort of trying to apply a little bit of what I learned the last couple of times. And, and I'm optimistic, at least, that the, the Vuelta, when you're listening to this, is going well for me or has gone well for me.
1: So I've got to ask about that because I've done situa, you know, certainly I've never done Tour de France to Volta. But I've done the five-day stage race, then a couple of days of rest, and then another five-day stage race. And I've had some times where I do that, and I get to the second stage race, and I'm smoked. I've had other times where I do the exact same routine. I get to the second stage race and have the race of my life. Is it a crapshoot? Like when you did that and went to the Volta and got 10th, you, were you looking at that going, wow, how am I having these legs? Or were there things that you knew you did that allowed you to have that form for the Volta?
2: Well, I think yeah, there, like in hindsight, there, there was definitely things I can look back and say that was why. I mean, for example, that year when I rode the Tour, I didn't know I was going to ride the Tour and I went on holiday and they rang me and said, hey, you're doing the Tour. So I went into the Tour super fresh, didn't ride GC. I just picked some days, went in breakaways, was in breakaway a lot, but I also had a lot of easy days, came out, and then I was forced to, to go easy because I had San Sebastian, and then I was forced to go easy again because I had the Olympics. And I went into the welter again as a helper, took it really easy. Stevie crashed. I waited for him the first few days, actually, because I was really going well. And he wasn't going super well uphill. So I spent the first few days sort of waiting back with him. And then he crashed and went home. And then they said, okay, you can you can go for it. And so the, the whole approach was that I just didn't overtrain when you can look back. Whereas the second year, I, got, I went to the tour for GC. I was riding every day. I was doing well. I was in the top 10. I got crazy sick, didn't finish the last few days of the tour and then went to altitude and tried to make up for what I'd lost. And, you know, so in hindsight, you can say, well, the second time I just smashed myself. And of course there was nothing left. What was I thinking? But at the time, it's hard to acknowledge that when you, when you say, well, I had a week off cause I was sick and, you know, I don't feel great. And the welter's is coming up and it's one of the hardest stage races. So I need to be fit. So yeah, it's, it's easy in hindsight but um i think the thing that we often underestimate is how hard racing is compared to training i mean you can look at numbers and say well i only averaged 200 watts but you probably did three hours at you know 100 watts easy while the brake went away and then you did two hours going so much harder than you'd ever go in training and you underestimate those effects and uh and, and that catches up to you because you, you do a stage race and then you go home and go, okay, I've had a couple of days easy. I need to start training again.
1: So we talk a lot in the show about the, this fundamental principle of training, which is it's all about stimulus recovery, stimulus recovery. You need to hit the body. You need to do some damage and then let the body ad- adapt to that. It almost sounds – it's almost it feels crazy to say this, but in that year where you did really well at the Volta – the tour was almost just training. It was a just a big stimulus, but you went into it fresh enough that you were able to recover and you, know, and, and you were able to hold back enough in the tour that you were able to balance that stimulus and recovery to, to keep building and finding better form after the tour. Is that, is that what I'm hearing?
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think also what was key was having those easy days in the tour to let the hard days turn into form. Whereas if it's just hard day after hard day, you never really get that chance because 21 days I mean at some point it's not doesn't become a stimulus it just becomes a, a absolute beating and um so I think yeah I think the easy days at the tour like you say going into it fresh and then having those easy days where you can sort of make the adaptions and you can come out of it good that was the key as opposed to you know and it was it was just a really great three-week block where everybody cooked for you you got a massage every day and and you, uh, you didn't have to do the washing. You didn't have to do anything. You sat on your bed or rode your bike. And, uh, so it was really, really good like that. But there's, there is also no reason to say you can't do a, a really hard tour. Like, I mean, I've just done the tour de France. And although I didn't ride GC, I think I actually ended up doing more work than if I had ridden GC. I mean, from day one, chasing breakaways, I never got an easy day in the mountains because I were all on the flat days because I either had to try and do a lead out or, or as you say, chase back breakaways or stay with Stevie. Or you know ride the front uh, on the mountain. So I actually ended up doing, in terms of numerically, harder than I have ever done with a, a GC. I still think it is possible if you you manage the time between the tour and the Vuelta correctly, to do both and still if you're fit enough in the tour that it didn't completely bring you to your knees, then you, you can come out of it really strong. But if you if you come out of like my first uh, my first Giro, I came out of that. I I was I wasn't good for months because I was just so tired.
1: Yeah, well, I've heard first Grand Tour. There's just no experience like it.
2: Yeah, it was it wasn't good. I mean, I already went into it extremely tired, and and the, I think I had this idea in my head that I was going into a Grand Tour. It was harder than anything I'd ever done. I needed to train harder than I ever have, and I absolutely fried myself. I did Romandy before it. Almost didn't finish Romandy. I was so bad and then I started the Giro so uh, it was yeah I mean I was completely uh, I guess mismanaged or or just didn't have the, the right people around me to sort of say hold on a minute mate you need to call your jets a little bit.
1: Now bear in mind our listeners uh, I don't think we have too many listeners who are doing grand tours mm-hmm. but we certainly have listeners that are doing stage races doing the local stage races doing some some big racing blocks when you talked about you think you can still go to a, a race like that, destroy yourself trying to go for GC and turn it around for your next big stage race, what are you, what's your approach? What are some of your strategies? And translate this to a way that the people who aren't doing a Grand Tour can use.
2: Well, it's a, it's a tightrope. I mean, I look at um, Stephen Kruzak last year. He was fifth in the Tour and then fourth in the Welter. And I had a big discussion with my trainer yesterday about, okay, how are we going to do this? Because... I, I, I rang him and said, look, I'm in a position where I actually, you know, it's, it's quite novel to me. I mean, the first time I did the double and it's worked well, it was all laid out for me. I just had to do the race that Sunday, race the next Sunday and recover in between. And I kind of, you know, almost fluked it. Uh, um, whereas this time I said, okay, I'm, everything's in my control. And I guess the approach we, you know, the philosophy we came out with that we're approaching the next sort of couple of weeks is, is that we just need to never... Like, do every, like, treat your body well, you know? Don't, you've just forced it into a really hard three weeks. So, don't, don't put unnecessary stress on it. For example, we're not going to do any low carb rides and we're only going to train in two day blocks and not do huge hours, but just do enough that you, um, you get the stimulus from training, but not, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to force your body into the red zone. It's already been in the red zone. You just need to trust that that's in there. Instead of trying to always push every day, like like normally before the welter, I would do, be doing sort of five, six, seven-hour rides, three-day blocks, some of them low-carb, um, trying to do saunas, trying to do gym, trying to do all that stuff. So we just cut it all out, cut out all the, the excess stuff, make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you never go into debt nutritionally. I mean, that's huge also because that really you, – you need to be catab- anabolic. To, you know, you need to stay anabolic so that you – You know, your hormones and everything have already taken quite a hit. So you need to still be recovering and still be getting the training stimulus. So just really treat your body right. Really just two day blocks, reduce the hours. We can do four or five hour rides max and a little bit of work in each ride. Um, a little bit of altitude, that kind of thing. But, but yeah, make sure you get enough sleep. Don't worry about going to the gym. Don't worry about doing saunas and just, yeah, just really look after your body.
1: So it's almost a case of at some point the race has become your training and your only focus in between is just getting your body ready for that that next stimulus, getting your body ready for that next race. And the worst thing you can do is think, oh, I'm not getting enough training and I have to go do a bunch of interval work.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I won't do intervals between – I'll do one interval session between now and the welter. Maybe a a few days out I'll do some VO2 efforts, but I I, I won't go hard. And I think – that's a mistake a lot of people do. They do too much intensity. But if you look back at what we did, I mean, you never do 21 days of intensity, which is what we did in the tour. And if you look at all the graphs and all that stuff, I mean, I, I don't follow them too closely. But, the you know, I'm still carrying a lot of form, I guess, according to, to training peaks. And and you just need to trust that, that because you had a week easy after the tour, that that's not gone away. I mean, I often take a week easy after a stage race now because I think, for years, I was always just running too tired.
1: So it's really rethinking that balance between stress and recovery and, and refocusing on the, the recovery side.
2: Focusing on recovery, but, but just, you, know, you can't just shut down and go, okay, I'm just going to ride around with two fingers in my nose between now and the tour. You still need to train because otherwise you're, you, especially for a guy like me going into a grand tour, if I, if I just stop riding, then my VLA max gets way too high. I get way too fresh. And then, you know, I lose that sort of strength and that endurance that you need for, for three weeks of racing. And when I say my VLA, VLA max gets too high, I mean, I then have the ability to do a really good sprint or, you know, maybe one uphill finish. But, um, on a mountain day, back to back after 10 days or whatever, then you, you lose that. So you need to, you need to maintain those kind of, you know, doing some strength work and doing some mediums and, things like that at the same time every day you, you, you need to never come home when you're hunger bonked or anything like that you can't have any of those going on you can't go and drink 10 beers and get up and train you can't do any of that stuff that that could put your body on the edge yeah it really does sound like
0: a tightrope you yes are at you're at this high level you're on a plateau of sorts that you have to ride and if you don't do enough you'll fall off one side and if you don't do if you do too much you'll fall off
2: the other side yeah yeah and i think in the end you you're never going to get it perfectly so you opt that you'll come into the welter and suffer for a couple of days and that's fine you know because they're 21 days so the ttt will be hard the first uphill finish will be hard, and then you'll be away. I mean, I look at Simon Yates last year in the welter riding with him in Poland. He suffered the first days, and I was flying in Poland. And he was saying like, "Oh, there's no way he he can ride GC at the welter He just suffered." And, and 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 he was thinking, you know, I could really, I could do a really great result in the welter because I was flying. And then by the end of Poland, you could see he was he really had it back. And then by the even the first stage of the welter uphill finish. I mean, I think I finished. Fourth from the peloton, and uh, Yatesy lost a bit of time. He wasn't great, and then the next day he was better, and I was a little bit worse. And then by stage ten he was, you know, untouchable, and I was losing mm. five minutes. So I think it you know when you're walking the tightrope, you are better to go in into a grandy. I mean, it's different for a one-day race or something like that, but into a grandy you are better to go in, not necessarily underdone in terms of fitness, but underdone in terms of intensity. You want the work in there, you want the volume, but you uh, you you know you can't afford to be a little bit behind in terms of that that real high intensity top end speed, and and that comes back so quick, especially if you've done the Tour de France or you've done a season of stage racing in the Pro Tour. I mean, it's it's just in your body.
1: Well, we said we were going to include Grant Holicky to talk about these things from the perspective of somebody who doesn't race a Grand Tour. But the fact is, Grant has experience working with tour athletes. Here's his experience working with Neil Henderson at Apex Coaching, helping an athlete do a double.
3: No, and and one of the other things that uh, that I'll often say is that years ago, Neil was coaching somebody that was asked to do multiple tours. Uh, they were asked to do the Giro and the Tour de France, and after the Giro. Um, that rider went and sat on a beach for seven days Yep. the it was a three-week gap right so the first week they did nothing didn't touch their bike the second week they got on their bike and did easy riding but nothing nothing specific the third week they got on their bike did some early week uh, uh short efforts and things like that and then walked into the tour recovered but also, probably knowingly very, very dull, right? Mm-hmm. Knowingly blocked up and all of those things. And what it took was a week or two to work his way back into that. He had the fitness, he just didn't have any sharpness whatsoever. So he wasn't going to go out there and win the prologue. And as you're saying, he's not going to be competitive in those tours. And even the guys that are, they're targeting the second tour. You know, somebody like Quintana is going to try to do the double, but. Fully knowing that the benefit of doing the double with the Tour de France is that very, very rarely does that first week have monumental stages that are going to try and decide the Tour. Right. You know He's going to lose time in a prologue, but maybe not a time because he's going to be rested. He's going to sit in and motor pace essentially for a week and then hopefully show up when the race goes to the Pyrenees.
1: Let's get back to the show and talk with George about his unique style of training. So what I love is this incredible self awareness of the type of rider you are. So you, you just talked about VLA Max, like, like it was almost a swear word in, <laughs> in the past, the previous podcast we did with you. You talked about how building up to a grand tour, you do a whole block where you do no interval work. It's just all getting big volume. And it sounds like you, you are the GC style rider and you are. You're, you're, you don't care about, can I sprint for that finish at the end? You're just building that big aerobic engine so that you can be with that
2: lead group on those big stages at, at the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I naturally, there's a, I have a few different th- sort of theories on why, on what works for me and why. Two, yeah, two things, I guess. The first is that often my VLA Max does get up too high for a GC, you know, for a, for a pure GC rider, can get quite high. Which is surprising, but you know, like my three minute power and things like that can be can be really, really good. Whereas you look at, say, Kreuzvik, he's the opposite. Firstly I have to train, you know, a lot of strength, a lot of hours, a lot of endurance to to get that low, to sort of to bring that down. Whereas Stevie has to train sort of VLA Max efforts so that he can get his up a little bit, so he can, you know, go with go with attacks and things and that's why he's such a good rider in the third week, because he's just he's just pure aerobic endurance but yeah I mean I I train very differently to other guys on my team I mean I do a lot more hours than anyone and it's not just for VLA max it's just that that seems to be what works for me over the years we've found out that if I do if I take out all the intensity and I just do generally in a build-up for a race I'll just do one interval one high intensity interval session I mean I do a lot of strength work a lot of tempos and things like that but just one interval session where I really have to suffer and, and uh, do sort of VO2 efforts. And, you know, I don't know if that's because I have a naturally high VO2 max anyway, but I often find that my first effort, you know, if I come down from altitude, for example, or doing a lot of base work and I go down and, and do a, a VO2 session or a high intensity session, I'll already hit really good numbers on my first, first session, which is quite different to, to other guys who need to do a lot of repeated intensity to get their numbers up.
1: It sounds like you're saying that, that it, it, that is highly individual. Like you're not saying anybody who's trying to be a GC rider should be doing exactly what I'm doing. You're saying this is what we've found over the years that, that works for you. And I can tell you, I've actually seen this. I have one athlete I coach. His, his VLA max is naturally incredibly high. We can do no sprint work. And if I tell him to go out and do a sprint, he can hit 1400 watts, which is, which is incredible for a, a local CAT2 rider. But we can spend all winter doing threshold work and aerobic work. And the second we stop, you just see that side of his fitness plummet. So I've seen the same sort of thing where that's just where he's unique. And it sounds yeah. like that's what you're saying, that this is just what you have found works for you, but don't necessarily replicate me because this is just me.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it's not that my VLA Max is crazy and I can do a, a great sprint. I mean, in my, I, I have a, a, a bad sprint. I mean, I am can't push many watts and... and I'm still, you know, nowhere near a high VLA max, but just for from a, a GC rider point of view, it needs it does need to go down. It does tend to go up quite easily, uh, as opposed to uh, if I freshen up a lot. So, you know, I, I also think that there's a lot of other things that one of the big factors for me is that that any day of the week, naturally, when I do a, a VO2 test, uh, I I always put out a good number, and so I don't really need a heap of work on that VO2, whereas I do struggle with this with really long three weeks sometimes, or with with 250k rides like the worlds sometimes, you know. Whereas other guys, that they, they can ride all day, but they they can't make the split. So yeah, it, it is very individual, and and I always think that miles help. The doing k's help, but you can't just ride around easily. You, you have to. For me, I ride pretty fast, or, or at least in the tempo zone when I go up hills and things like that a lot of the time, but. it's pretty easy to work out what works for you early on. I mean, you do a bunch of miles, freshen up, and then see how you're riding, or do a bunch of efforts and then freshen up and then see how you go. Yeah, I I really train quite differently to to a lot of guys, which is, uh, I mean, I met a guy out riding who did the tour this morning, who's also doing the Vuelta, and I was out doing uh, some big gear work on my TT bike, and he was already doing VO2 efforts, and I was thinking, man, I'm not gonna do VO2 efforts for two more weeks. And that just, you know, just highlights the difference between, between the types of riders we are.
1: I've been quite surprised with this conversation with you about how little VO2 work, so that high-end anaerobic capacity VO2 work you do, and you're also describing other Grand Tour riders, that, that they do very little. When you apply that to amateurs who aren't doing Grand Tours or just doing a few races a year... Do you think that's a good strategy for them or do you agree with what's becoming very popular of this, do that high intensity work all year round? You should be doing those VO2 efforts in, in December and January even.
2: Well, I think, you know, again, it's, it's quite individual. And if you really struggle for the VO2, I mean, if that's a real issue for you that you, you don't have the power, then you need to work on it. I mean, for sure. And we will do things uh, when you first get back. There's a lot, I mean, my coach, he he coaches a lot of guys from our team. He's the head trainer. He'll, he often starts giving, um, super short stuff, just a little, you know, one minute, two minute stuff. But it, it's more just to kind of get you going early in the season. But I think it's also different for an amateur that does, you know, sort of 20 race days a year, one day races. They can afford to do that. But when you start in, in Paris Nice and then you have Sun Tour and then you, oh, sorry, you're starting down under the nearest Sun Tour and then you go, into the spring with Paris Nice, Catalonia, and Basque, you're doing so much intensity, you just blow up. I mean, it, you can get yourself going really well by it, but I think long term, that's when you you get this huge decline, especially if you do the VO two without having done the miles. And I mean, I, I know guys that that won't do more than twenty hours a week, and they just do efforts and efforts and efforts. Yeah, I mean, some some guys will argue that really works for them, but for me, that's a that's a terrible approach and. Even for a race like uh, Down Under, I mean, this is a great example, actually. This year in Down Under, in December, I didn't do any miles. I, I, I was just riding around. I was really taking it easy. And I trained, you know, like 15 to 18 hours a week. And then I was allowed to do one big week uh, where I did like 26 hours. And then I went to Down Under. And uh, I think the second stage or, 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 I don't know, fourth stage or something was corkscrew. And it was seven minutes, and I did a really good seven minute effort, um, and I was first over the corkscrew, and I had really almost my best uh, six seven minute power ever. But it was only a hundred k stage or hundred twenty k stage; it was super easy, and then we just went nuts up the climb. Uh, then you know the the team were sort of really excited, saying, "Hey, you look like the strongest guy on on the corkscrew. You know, we can win this race." And then by the time we got to Alunga Hill, which was the last day, I think stage six or seven. It was a you ramped it up to 170 K's and you had to do two climbs. I got to the bottom of Longer Hill and I was just stuffed. I just didn't have the aerobic base to, to deal with the, the accumulation of the effort. Whereas early on in the race, a one day race where I where my coach had just sort of given me a few shorter efforts, I, I, you know it did get me going well enough to do the seven minute effort full gas, but you know over a stage race and then when you have to when you add the, the distance in and the multiple climbs, it really didn't work out well for me.
0: Well, I I just had a chuckle because you said you weren't riding in December, and then you said you were doing fifteen to eighteen hours of riding a week, and a, and that's probably more than I've ever done in the last four or five years. Uh, so that's a big week for 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 you know a lot of people. Um, that, that, so it's all relative. It's all relative.
1: I'll just point out this will drive you nuts. Chris trains like five hours a week, and we went in time trial to climb here in Boulder. And on Strava, he got third. He was above Sepkus. He was, well, you,
0: you were 13th on this climb. This was Superman. He was above everybody.
2: Superman. Superman.
0: Uh, you go up, you go up Chapman and then you finish up the top of Superflag. So you were probably picking, yeah, you were you, holding back. You were probably literally putting two fingers up, up your nose that day, <laughs> but still. And, and he exaggerates. <laughs> I do, I ride more than five hours a week, but. I don't I don't train and it's all relative
2: but you know doing short stuff will make you great at, at doing things like that you know but but then short then stuff. go do uh, do yeah. 200k and, and and at the end of it you know that and and that's the difference also you got to look at the racing I mean that is pro tour racing now it's it's day after day and it's it's being good at the end of six hours and that's where the big differences are made but yeah I, I mean yeah 18 hours is I would consider a pretty a very small week for me Um a big week. We're getting into the 30s, 32, 34, even at a maximal. But yeah, it's, uh, I think one year in the tour, 2016, the first week I had 41 hours. Wow. Well, you
0: know, you, are, this is your job. So you really should be riding 40, 40 hours a week every week. Otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Seriously. This is, this is a regular working <laughs> week.
1: <laughs> George touched on the fact that depending on how you train and where you're at in your season, your strengths and weaknesses can really vary. I talked with Grant about how long it takes to truly achieve your best race form. In general, how long would you say somebody needs to be doing base training, and then <clears throat> how long does it take for them to get from base to good race form, and then how long can they expect that race form to last before they, they need their first big rest?
3: Again, very very generally, the funny the thing that's kind of humorous about this is that I'm standing here looking at an an athlete's performance management chart (laughs) and it's their last uh year And, and it's a it's a pro female cyclist she ended her season right around september took her break uh and it was a little bit of a long one it was it was about a month she started uh training again seriously and focused the beginning of november and November, December, January. So we're three minutes into that build for her. And I would say that she is starting to get, she's in a race place. She would be able to race and be able to perform. Uh, I will want one more month. And that's the plan to get her to peak. So a four month train, training uh, cycle to get her to peak for Strata Bianchi. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to try to hold that for upwards of three to four weeks uh, maybe even six depending on on whether i can get some races in there that are not as focused and then we're going to take some sort of a small uh, pause some sort of a break some sort of a regathering of our thoughts so to speak uh before we make the build and the push towards nationals in july uh in august so I, I would say most athletes are going to need something along the lines of a three to four month build uh, before they can really target. They're going to be able to hold a pretty high level of fitness for uh, depending on the athlete. I know this is a huge variable piece, but to eight weeks with a very, very, very high peak level of performance for something as short as two to three weeks before they're going to have to hit the reset button and, and figure it out again. Because at that point in the season two, you might be, hey, my sprint's great, or my 20-minute power is fantastic, but this is really struggling. So back to the drawing board and working on those pieces.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's pretty consistent with what I see. Uh, I never try to take an athlete longer than, than eight weeks of trying to hold it steady. Yeah. I think it's hard.
3: And 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 frankly, you know, Trevor and speaking one of the exact same things you say. If I look up somebody's PMC chart and I see a year where it looks almost exactly the same, they're at the same level and it's just kind of wiggling up and down for uh, more than you know four months. There's no load, there's no build, and, there, and there's no drop. That worries the hell out of me. Yep. That makes me feel. That makes me feel like immediately that a. I think they're probably overly fatigued, and definitely limiting their ability to perform.
1: Yep, I agree. I used to uh, live down in Florida, and I call the Florida the land of the 85 percenter.
3: Because <laughs> uh, they
1: have no base, they have no season. Right. They are the right. same form all year
0: round.
3: All year round, right. And, and, and the biggest thing you see with people like that is that they're just not as good as they can be it's not that that you know and it's not that they're not good they could be better and i think that's what people really miss out on is that you could be racing at a higher level if you gave yourself that opportunity to step down
1: yeah which people have a hard time with yeah i've tried to explain that down there um I still periodically go down at Christmas and again in March and at Christmas, I'll go up and do the training race and they will kill me. (laughs) But in March, it's not even a challenge because they haven't improved one iota.
3: Right. Absolutely. And, and yeah, that without a doubt, that's your, that is one of the things that's the most dangerous is, is, and, 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 now, I, I think too many people look at this reality and say that we're saying you can't hold that form. And that's true. We are, Coaches are saying we can't, you can't hold that form. But what a lot of coaches or what I would really be worried about in that scenario is you're not reaching your potential. potential. Right. And, and that's a great way to word it, right? Because that gets them in a positive mindset, not just, hey, you're hurting yourself and you're not going to be good. You're saying, hey, you're losing your ability to be great.
1: Let's get back to the show and talk with George about one of my favorite things: long, insanely epic rides. But well, I gotta say, this this is kind of off subject. But um, I train very similar to you, and I've been noticing on Strava all these rides that you and Sep Kusa have been doing because I go out and do very similar routes. And Chris and I did this ride out to Golden that was like yeah. took us seven hours, and we were really happy with it and felt we were really fast. And then we noticed that you and Sep a couple of months earlier had done virtually the same route, and we looked at how fast you guys were. And at the you know, after looking at that, we were just like, "Oh my god, we're slow."
2: I, I remember the day though. We, me and Sep started, and we just—I don't know if he was half wheeling me or I was half wheeling him, but we just went to war that day, and uh, it, it was—it was a great ride. I, I remember we went out over way all these crazy. I mean, I've—I've I've lived in Boulder for a year. I trained there all the time. And, uh, I thought I knew every road and then I started riding with Sep. Yeah. And we were going all through sort of people's gardens and, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, yeah. we, we, we ended up doing a pretty crazy ride and we, we just, uh, we pushed on. And, and it wasn't until I think the top of, uh, peak to peak coming into Ned that I finally managed to force a crack in him. But most of the time he just had me on the limit. Well, well that, that makes me feel better because
1: there was this one climb, I can't remember the name of it. It's just, this- Fairly well-known climb near Golden that uh, uh, is barely Lookout, paved. Johnson? No, not look at What was oh, the one? Oh. Douglas, where, Douglas where Mountain. Douglas. Chris
2: Chris like, Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Chris is like, Trevor, you should take a run at this. So I, I, I took a run and I felt really good about it. I'm like, oh, I'm sure I did pretty well in Strava. And then when I got home, I took a look at it. And you and Sep had just destroyed me. And you had first and second. And you guys were like six hours into your ride <laughs> when you did that. Chris and I were only like three. Yeah, no, it
0: was a big day. Every you need those rides every once in a while where you you uh, destroy yourself or and and have somebody else there alongside you to help you destroy yourself and you to destroy them. But you can't do that every day.
2: No, no, not every day. But I, I you know, but th- th- those are the kind of rides I really feel I get the most benefit from. I you know, I, they're my form finders, they're my engine builders. I just I, I often do these five six hour rides where I I ride every climb, you know, just under five watts a kilo or something. You just push all day and then. You know, like you say, you can't do them all the time, but they're the ones that I, I get a lot more benefit from that than from, say, going out and doing four eight-minute efforts full gas.
1: Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I personally know I have always been on my best form when you go out. Like, you don't do it every week. It would destroy you, but you got to go out and have those epic rides where you go, this probably doesn't on paper make a lot of sense, but, boy, it makes you stronger.
2: Yeah, but, but I also, you know, they're the most enjoyable for me as well, you know, I don't find a lot of joy in going to a climb and going up for eight minutes, turning around and go, doing it three more times but i i you know I love that feeling of just going on an adventure and just hooking into a ride, and then after five hours you start to feel the cracks so you stop for a coke and you know you you, you get i always say that in, in after five hours you start making your money, and then that's where you're in the the zone where everything you do up to that seven hours is just you can't replicate that other than going out for five hours. And then starting, then you know you're in a new a new realm of adaptation because your your body's like, what's going on here? It's still pushing six hours, seven hours, and you get home and, you, and you're ruined. But you just have this great, you've had this adventure, and you have this great sense of sort of satisfaction that you've just done so much work as opposed to some monotonous session where you just go up and down a hill and come home after three hours. And you, you know, is it's it's for me, it's it's the joy of cycling is those big long rides.
0: Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. WHOOP helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, WHOOP just released the new WHOOP Strap 3.0 which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. WHOOP Strap 3.0 now has 5-day battery life, an improved strap and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. I know you grew up in a small town in, in New Zealand, and did you... Did you know early on that this was the type of riding that you liked and that also worked for you? Or did was it trial and error to get to where you are now? Because forgive me for saying, but it seems like you've really come a long way in the last few years from a guy that maybe was built for and and mature enough to handle week-long stage races and to now a few years later where you're – Coming in top ten at a grand tour and doing back to back grand tours. That that to me seems like a, a, a big difference.
2: Yeah, I, I, I guess I did know early I mean early on I didn't didn't ride bikes early on at all. I was mountain biking, I just went and smashed it every day and for an hour and came home and you know, I didn't have a coach or anything. When I first got into road cycling I was looked after by a guy, Rob Reed, and he you know, he's still big uh one of the biggest sort of influences in my my career now I still talk to him a lot about training and ideas and just life in general and he always had the philosophy of miles and he's always helped me and sort of told me just go ride it's long just ride 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 and for me I, that's when I started noticing like oh well, man I'm actually getting way better now but I think there were so many other things that for one I developed late because I started late and I I'm just a young kind of person. Like, you know, you see, see guys when they're 17, they've got beards, they're already massive, and they, they're just man-childs. <laughs> um, whereas I'm I'm late, and I'm feeling like now I'm starting to come into sort of the age where I'm actually finding my legs. Um, but secondly, boy, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm Benjamin Barton. But the, the other thing I think is that, uh, I, you know, the first years of my career, I just didn't know what I was doing. I was riding, but I then picked up team coaches and, They just sort of told me what to do. So I kind of lost my philosophy and I I was too scared to say, you know, I'm tired. I'm not going to – I kind of felt like I had to impress them in training. You know, I had to hit the numbers even when I wasn't good. I had to just prove to them that I could handle this training even though I was tired and I didn't want to do the intervals and was all this stuff. I also think that I didn't get told how much to eat. I was, You know, I just wasn't eating enough and not because I was trying to get skinny but just because I didn't realize that that's how much food we burn. So I was always just blowing up and, and there was so many, so many mismanaged things in my career that finally when I came to Jumbo, they were like, hold on, why are you doing this? Just do it this way. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that probably makes a lot more sense and, and little things that make a massive difference. And then as soon as I got those sorted within, within half a year, I was uh, riding top 10 in, in quite a few world tour races and it went from there.
1: So continuing with that, the question I have for you is what were some of the things you learned along the way that you that made a huge difference that you would just say boy anybody any level should know this the,
2: the, the, this this applies to everybody there's, there's a few key key things i mean don't train when you're sick that is massively i remember there was a day i was going up rock and when i was in uh, radio shack i was sick and i was just going up and down roca corba and like looking back like, what was i doing like i had a fever that could have giving me myocarditis or something like that. I mean, that's just basic. Don't train when you're sick. Also, let yourself recover from stage races. We've touched on this already, but I would often do a stage race and then take two days easy and then start training again. Whereas now I do a stage race, Catalonia, I won't train. So that'll finish on Sunday. I'll go two hours easy every second day until say Friday. Then I'll do like a three, four hour ride to open back up and then Saturday, Sunday. So it's basically five days of of, of recovery and just trust that you're not going to, you know, that's the confidence that you're not going to lose form or that you're good enough to, to do that.
1: Several times through this episode, George talks about the importance of trusting yourself enough to rest and not always race tired. During my conversation with Grant, he also discussed this idea and talked about how peak form is finding that perfect balance of training and recovery. Uh,
3: there's absolutely a time, a, uh, uh, a, window is another way to kind of look at it. You're going to have a window of of high level performance fitness, um, and and you know, a lot of amateur racers may have the ability to hold that window long term because what they're doing, and we see this a lot in the cross athletes, is that because they're racing twice over the course of a weekend, you're getting this fitness bump, and if you go and you rest during the week. You're going to be able to hold a fairly high level of performance physically over a period of time. My my opinion is peak 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 performance is is pretty narrow window because the rest that's required to create peak performance is by nature a diminishing fitness piece. Um, resting the legs, resting the body doing those things, you're going to watch the fitness drop as the recovery comes up. And what you're trying to nail to hit that window as a coach is hitting that place where those two things intersect, where the fitness falling and the fatigue or lack of fatigue rising. Right. So the fitness is coming down. The fatigue is coming down. When do you hit that sweet spot? And that sweet spot's different for every athlete. You know, if you use the numbers on Training Peaks or use the numbers in WKO4 or whatever their golden cheetah, whatever program you choose to use, um, every athlete's going to be different. What intersects for Amanda Miller is going to be very, very different than what intersects for Yannick Ekman or Danny Summerhill. And so, there is a small window. What I really feel like is repeatable high-level performance for an amateur athlete through the course of, of a race season, the limiting factor there becomes mental fatigue. Showing up to a race week in and week out with an expectation of winning or performing, uh, at some point you're going to lose that. Uh, and it's often in a reflection of losing it a little bit physically, but it's hard to stay mentally sharp. For that extended period of time this is why we watch high level cyclists not just take physical breaks when they take their mid-season breaks or their uh post uh focus breaks they go on vacation they go to a beach they don't get on the bike for six days they're taking mental breaks as much as they're taking physical breaks to get away from the intensity mentally of what racing at that level does to your to your, uh, to as as you said earlier, your autonomic uh, nervous system, it, it it takes a huge toll. So, I do think that you can hold a fairly high level for a long period of time, but it is finite. And that's the thing that that clean point in, for nationals in January can often be held. A very very brief period of time even going to worlds two weeks later or three weeks later there's a there's a whole other thing that i'm trying to put together i'm not going to hold that nationals form uh for worlds i'm going to try to get something out of the world cup and then re-peak again for that world cup form so super high level performance the the window is is very very small for sounds like for... you're talking just a couple weeks yeah, and, and and that's what I've seen. And again, every athlete's different, but that's why we have A races and B races and C races. Your A targets are, and, and we need to have those, you know, mm-hmm. your A targets are those races that you are willing to compromise other races for, right? If I'm going to really focus on nationals or I'm going to really focus on Pan Ams, I have to be willing to maybe not be my best the two to three weeks leading into that race uh, in terms of performance. That's why you prioritize races, and every athlete is going to prioritize races. Sometimes the question is whether they prioritize their training to reflect those prioritized races.
1: Now, what do you mean by that?
3: What I mean by that is, is <laughs> we all target something right? Mm -hmm. so you're familiar with the calendar around here. If I look at my spring, just me as an example, I'm going to target a race like Boulder Roubaix, or I'm going to target a race like Copenberg. They suit my style, they suit my riding, they suit my technical ability because they're on dirt. If that race is say April 15th, and that's a major target for my spring, I have to be willing to compromise or not be my best at the race on April 7th and April 1st. We're all very, very good at pointing to that date on the calendar and saying that's the one I'm focusing on. We're not always good the two weeks prior being willing to let that race that's down the road stay the priority. Sometimes we try to do too much. Sometimes we try to rest too much or We get in this cycle of train, 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 and we don't rest when that A race is coming up. This is why planning and structure is so important, not just when you do it, but holding that planning and structure as the time comes to that priority race.
1: Let's get back to our conversation with George about the things he's learned through his career. The next one is the importance of eating.
2: I mean, the other massive thing is eat enough, like on the bike, to eat you know, I used to think, I oh, eat a bar an hour and a gel's in the finals, and now I'd eat three bars an hour. You know, I'd always try and eat somewhere around that 100 grams of carbs an hour, and that's so much bulk, and you think, this is crazy, this must be too much, but uh, actually Alan Lim was the guy that turned the page for me, nothing to do with Jumbo, it was Alan Lim who told me um, before Kelly one year, I was in Boulder hanging out with him, and he's like, man, just try and be on the start line, you want to be as skinny as possible, but as as heavy as possible in terms of glycogen and, and water on board and that year i think i was third on on the on the queen stage and you know it was a big breakthrough for me and and then from that moment i was like right he's eating is actually pretty important in racing. that's
1: something a lot of people don't understand and just quickly jumping into the physiology uh, when you're talking about glycogen to form glycogen your body bonds one glucose molecule to Uh, four water molecules so in essence think of it this way for every pound of glycogen or or of glucose that you want to store you you have to bind it to essentially four pounds of water so if you want to glycogen stock if you're doing carb loading before the race you're actually going to arrive at the race pretty heavy but it's not fat it's glycogen which you're going to use in the race
2: yeah, and and I mean we are now we've now advanced that a lot more on Jumbo. We we now have an app and we get told what to eat and all of this. But we maintain in training mostly a pretty high carbohydrate uh, level, so that when we get to a race, we don't actually get much heavier. But I could also drop two kilos by just eating salads and really depleting my glycogen. It used to be that I would suddenly be two kilos heavier at a race at the start of the race i mean this is not going into the the other inflammation we talked about on the last podcast but it's i'm talking about when you're fresh and uh, you you know i used to just think you had to eat five plates of pasta the night before if you in training you, you know you maintain a pretty good glycogen balance there's not actually a huge amount to really you can add to that before the race if you're already quite full but you can really Eat a lot on the bike to help you. Ninety grams an hour is is a lot of uh, carbohydrate, and you do that for five hours. You're putting in two thousand calories of, of food just in a, in a bike race.
1: So, what is it like in a? There's a bit of a side topic, but in a Grand Tour, how what is it like trying to get enough food in through through the race?
2: You know, we we're pretty lucky. We have a, a great uh, nutrition sponsor, Vfit, which is is made just for the team. It might be available. I'm not sure if it's available. I guess it is available to the public now, but it's it's you know it's really palatable and you drink a lot if it's hot. You drink a lot of your calories, so basically if you eat, drink a bottle an hour, thirty grams. Eat a gel and a bar. They're both we we measure everything in thirty grams. That'll give you ninety grams. And on a really intense day, if you're trying to shoot for hundred and ten grams, you make sure you drink another bottle an hour, um, or take another gel. So it is manageable. But there's also a lot that goes into that where you train the gut in training. And we'll have days in our training schedule where you do specifically train your gut to absorb that much carbohydrate.
0: Yeah, we've actually had a conversation with Oscar's You Can Droop about this very subject. So we, you know, we've talked about the, the app and we've talked about the, the science and we've talked about training the gut and all of these things. So um, yeah. listeners out there that haven't caught that episode,
2: be sure to do.
1: So, anything else that you you feel, boy? Everybody, uh, you know, this is something I learned the hard way. Everybody needs to know this.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it was don't stress as much about just be confident that you're a good rider, that you got there for a reason, and that you don't have to that you can take two days easy and not become a bad rider. I think that was when I look back. I think, man, I was always so tired and always so overdone, and and as soon as I sort of, you know, you go actually, I'm not going to get worse in three days off then take the three days and then had a really good session and and then then you're back on top so yeah i mean it's it's such a cliche to say listen to your body but it's it's and it takes it takes a lot of confidence to go oh man i'm not super today Mm -hmm. which isn't always mean don't train you know like i often wake up feel tired and still train but when you when you feel like okay there is this isn't right there's something wrong it's like that the only way I can describe it is like a sour feeling in your legs, which probably doesn't make sense to anyone except for maybe a cyclist that stops at a cafe and they just they get back on their bike. And and not just standard cafe legs, but a real – it's almost like you're poisoned it's, and, and then you need to shut it down.
1: So let's flip this around. Is there anything that you see people do or you just want to say – we're grand tour riders. We have to do that, but you're you're amateur riders. Please, please don't do that.
2: Well, to be honest, I, I don't train now with with any amateur riders. I mean, the guys I ride with back in New Zealand are are really good, up and coming juniors. So they're doing all the right the right things. Um, and then I'm surrounded by pros. And uh, you know, I guess in Boulder, it's kind of the, the home of the the amateur cyclist or the the master cyclist that takes it very seriously. And, uh, I think a lot of them just take it a bit too seriously. I mean, it's great to be really serious, train hard, but to not, to, to not let it take over your life when you think, okay, it's a, uh, it's just a, a sport, you know? And I, I, I see with young guys, they often, they often get a bit, a bit too kind of obsessed by it. And they, you know, I think it's important to go, to go have some beers with your mates and to stay in touch with that side of your life and spend time with your girlfriend and family and all that things, because that's when things go, when things, sort of don't go to plan and cycling that's when you 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 know you need those outlets or those escapes or those strong relationships with people away from cycling and and for me I always tell young guys like especially when they're like 18 and they're, they're not going to house parties and things like that sure you need to train hard around peak events but you also need to make sure that you enjoy being young and 18 and or whatever 16 and, and do all those normal things because a lot of guys get to 24 and go oh, man I've kind of missed out when on life and I'm kind of a bit over the cycling thing and I've got a knee injury and whatever, you know. So that's, that's what I'd always say to, to young guys. And, and, and I'm glad I was surrounded by friends that, you know, none of them were, were, were cyclists when I was through school. And, and I really enjoyed my time as a young guy. And I look back, you know, I feel more comfortable locking it down when I have to because I, I have those outlets for, for when it's time to use them.
0: So George, as you know, since you've been a guest before, we like to close out the episode with a one minute takeaway from each of the guests and, and Trevor and I. We'll start with you. So you've got 60 seconds. What are, what are the big, uh, biggest take homes that our listeners should take from this, from this episode?
2: Well, <laughs> I think we covered a lot. I'm just trying to think what we went over, but I think essentially, um, From a training point of view, work out what works for you. I know for me, it's, it's big hours. You don't, I don't need a lot of intervals and, and and I train to, to what I'm trying to achieve. I need to be good after five, six hours. And, uh, that's why I'm doing these big weeks, long rides and, you know, trusting my natural ability to do a, to do a good high VO2 effort. Whereas, you know, if you're a guy doing short, sharp races, you struggle to do the power, then, then go for it. Train those, uh, those peaks, I guess we'll say, the you know, anything from sprinting up to that 21-hour power. And and I think, you know, you'll, you'll see results from you if you train specifically for what you're good at and train your weaknesses, as, as the cliche goes. Trevor, do you have one? Uh,
1: well, I would say my first take-home is if you're on Strava, don't do the same routes as uh, George and Sep do because <laughs> it just hurts the ego. Uh, but other than that, I really liked your point about... Don't get stressed and avoid recovery that you said one of the the biggest changes for you was being willing after a stage race or after a big training block to take some real rest and not be exhausted all the time. So I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that athletes make. They show up to every race 75%
0: because they're always tired. Chris, you know, it's, it's a, it's a theme that we've talked about before on the show and we touched upon it quite a bit in this episode, of course, don't, necessarily do what George does in terms of volume, in terms of blocks, in terms of uh, combining lifting and 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 riding. And the, just the overall quantity of training isn't necessary for an amateur. But if you listen to the way he speaks about these things and the knowledge he has about what his body needs and the latest science on what is best for recovery, what is best for adaptation, what is best for, um, leading into a grand tour, et cetera. It just shows, a uh, this level of experience and knowledge that is helpful for him. And that certainly is going to help anybody at any level be a better rider, perform better is having more knowledge, experience. Keeping up on some of the latest science, and I'm not just saying that because this 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 uh, podcast is about that very subject, but it all goes towards making you a better athlete. And that's, I think everybody would agree that when you're performing better and you're feeling good and you're hitting the things that you want to do, you're enjoying it more too. So, that's what I would say. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at Vellanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash News and on Twitter at twitter.com slash news. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For George Bennett, Grant Holkey, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.